Okay, you guys, welcome everybody who are here in the church studio and those of you who tune in at home. Uh, we're in 1 Corinthians, chap it's the chapter on Christian love. We're in part two. And uh, if you haven't been with us before, we begin with a word of prayer. We sing the word of God set to music. It's up on the screen. You don't have to sing, but it's actual the verses that my daughter put to music. And then we, uh, we sit in silence for a few minutes, and then we come back and we teach verse by verse. So uh, let's have a prayer. God, we uh, love you and seek you and need you and um, recognize your hand in our lives, that uh, the blessings that we have pour from you, the protection that we have, and that you're cognizant of us when uh, things go south and things are difficult. We know that you're aware and you love us and uh, you have nothing but goodwill for our existence and are there to catch us when we fall. We pray that our hearts will be attuned to your truth today by the Spirit. The words that are said from me are just words from a man, and uh, so can be wrong, can be right. Let the Spirit discern for us in our hearts. And then we also pray for those who are having difficulty getting here, for whatever reason, life difficulties or struggles of faith or whatever, that they'll go somewhere and be renewed in the spirit. So be with us now as we reflect upon your words, set the song in Jesus' name. Amen.
For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Okay. On? Did you say on? Oh, thank you. All right, we left off last week, and uh, we have been talking about really hyperbolic examples that Paul gives to show the importance of Christians choosing agape love in their lives. It is the language that we are known by. It's the love. It's, it's really nothing else. But there are some factors to it to understand as we talk about it. And so his approach here in chapter 13 is to take some really valuable spiritual gifts that people have, you know, of tongues back in the day, perhaps today, I don't know, faith, prophecy, mysteries, knowing all kinds of things, intellectual knowledge of godly things. And he blows them up in himself. And he says things like, if I have all knowledge, and uh, then he drops the bomb and, he's, and he says, but I don't have godly love, I am nothing. And we know here at campus that that is the operative word, this godly love. It's everything. I was invited to be on a I went into a studio last week, three strong, hardened atheists for a show, and it was two hours where we sat and talked, and they threw their stuff, and we talked about campus. Why do church? What is the purpose? And, and, and I was able to say, it's really for us to learn to love. That's the reason we get together and do what we do, so that 
we can learn how God wants us to love. That's what it's all about. You don't need to come here. You need to go to another church. Uh, if you know how to love perfectly, see you later, right? So our text said, the first verse, Paul said, though I speak with the tongue of men and angels and have not charity, that's what it says in the King James, but it means godly love, I am become as a sounding brass and a tinkling cymbal, talked about that, and though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and have not, and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains and I don't have godly love, I am nothing. Paul says, if I could move the Wasatch Mountains by faith, I could literally move them over across to the west side by faith. But I fail in godly love. I personally, Paul says, I am nothing. So uh, I wouldn't be any kind of teacher if we skipped over that powerful statement because we didn't cover it last week where Paul says that about faith. We have a tendency to make faith the most important trait in Christianity on earth. And for really good reason. There's a really good reason. The scripture holds faith up as the horse before the cart. It holds faith up as the driver before the cart with the goods of love in it. You got to have something pulling the cart of love. You got to have something that, that helps the love exist. And it is faith. And faith is vital. But it is not the most important thing. But it works hand in hand with the love that God wants us to have. So, uh, it's a pillar of Christianity. If we hold up the father of Judaism, Islam, and Christianity, his name is Abraham. And to all three of those major world religions, Father Abraham is called Father Abraham because of his faith. That's why he is so big in Judaism, Christianity, and uh, Islam. So, Scripture goes so far as to say in Hebrews chapter 11, in what we call the Hall of Fame of Faith, but without faith it is impossible to please God. Without faith. But you got to understand, if we take what Paul has said here about faith, it's not the faith that's pleasing him, it's, the, uh, it's what the faith does in us in helping us to love. You can't miss that connection in Scripture. Because Paul says, if you can have all the faith in the world to move the mountains, but if you don't have godly love, you're nothing, you have nothing, then we know that the faith is important, but it's not paramount, right? So then, what are we to do with a statement that says, if you can have all faith, enough to move mountains, but you don't have godly love, you're nothing? It's hyperbole. Paul is speaking hyperbolically. He's taking an extreme example, right? And it has um, value in showing that godly love over everything else uh, is supreme. Why? Because it's eternal. The godly love that we learn to possess, that we learn to exhibit in this life, is eternal. It goes on and on and on, past this life. It's here, you develop it here, it will always be. 
knowledge of things, tongues, faith will go away. Gone. It will go away. So the love, because God is love, is the key to the Christian faith. That's the ultimate goal. But even in this statement that faith will fail and knowledge will fail and tongues will fail, we can't allow ourselves to suggest that the truest expression, try to stay with me, the truest expression of godly love cannot exist without faith. And I've made this point clear before, but sorry for the redundancy, but true love, which is the goal, which is what we want, which is the end game. As I said, if you love perfectly, you don't ever need to study. But true love is the end game, but you cannot get there and express it in a godly way unless there is faith in the process, unless the horse, faith, is pulling the cart, love. All right? So they are two sides to the same coin. And I've illustrated that on the board for you. I don't know if you're going to have to rearrange the the cameras, but uh, so... What we have here is the coin of Christianity. Someone says, what is Christianity? We say, well, that's a coin. Let's just use that illustration. And we have the head side or the horse. And and even though faith is preeminent and the most important and the goal, the head side, the, the number one side, the horse before the cart is always faith. And the tail side, or the cart, actually, we could say the goal, the end goal, is love. And it's not the love that we talked about that the world gives. It's godly love, right? So, in order for Christianity to be understood contextually, you see it as a coin. And on the first side, the head uh, head side, it is faith first. And on the tail side, it is love. Okay, so um, remember the six elements that I posted on the board last week of what godly love is and contrasting it to the other kinds of love, storge love, philos love, eros love, uh, all those different types of love. Those are the loves that we feel, right? But a godly love, we started off and we said, It is for the goodwill of others. Always for the goodwill of others. That's godly love. And we said it's never selfish. That was the second thing we taught about it. Third thing we said, I think, is that it's always an action. It's not something you just kind of think about. It's an action. Okay? And, or a verb. And it's a a choice of the will. It's not a feeling. It's not a feeling. It's not a feeling. And we said it exists in the opposition of something. It it only can exist in the opposition of something. Remember we said it's not godly love if you want to go and have a beer with someone, they're your friend and you're enjoying the heck out of it. That's philos love. You want to do that. It's godly love when your friend invites you to go have the beer and you say, okay, but a woman along the way gets hit by a car and needs some help out in the street and you're like, I gotta meet my friend. Oh, that's the opposition when godly love takes over, you see. So it's not the feeling kind that benefits us kind, the, the, the selfish kind, it's the oh, crap kind for us. That's what it is. I hate to coin it that way, but 
So because it's a choice and because it exists in opposition to what, you, what we would naturally do, naturally do, this love is the decision to act based on trusting or believing promises. It's the choice to act on trusting or believing promises. You're going to meet your friend for the beer at the bar. It's going to be a great time. You can't wait. Philos love. Rah, rah. The old woman, bag woman's hit. And she's at the side of the road. Very inconvenient. And you say, Jesus said to go the extra mile. Jesus said to, you know, do these selfless kinds of things. And you choose. You know from information that Jesus said this. You have faith that Jesus wants us to do that. There's the head side of it. Then you choose to act in that selfless love. There's the tail side of it. So because godly love is not a feeling and it's more a product of the mind and our will, it's a product of our mind, will, and emotions choosing to do what God wants us to do, it's automatically tied to something that a person believes, has chosen to believe, and then acts accordingly. Let me explain this. God says, forgive. Okay? Jesus said, forgive 70 times 7, and that means every time forgive. Okay? Our natural inclination is hold a grudge. But we have been given a commandment to forgive and a promise to that commandment to forgive that I'll forgive you if you forgive others. There's a promise tied to it. Okay? So if we believe, if we have faith or trust in that command, forgive. And if we believe the promise, if you forgive, I'll forgive you. Um, then we will make the decision sometimes to actually forgive the person. And it's a choice. You have to make the choice in opposition of what you would rather do. Okay? So if we don't have faith that it's important to forgive, if we don't have faith that it's important to forgive seven times 70 like Jesus said, we may choose to say, no, I'm not going to do that, and therefore we choose to fail in love. So that agape love does not exist in a vacuum. Agape love is being pulled by promises and commands given that we learn about by studying scripture. Okay? So without knowing the principles, and this is a constant daily situation in our lives, with our wives or husbands, with our children, with our neighbors, with our employees, with our, uh, our colleagues, with our friends, with the people who drive us nuts. It's a constant decision that we make on how to respond to that. The more information we have about what God wants us to do in the situations helps us say we're going to have faith and trust in that and therefore love. The less knowledge we have of the information, the more we'll rely on our own inclinations. And if we don't have the, uh, the knowledge that we're supposed to forgive 70 times 70 because we've never heard it or been to church or whatever, then we say, I'm never going to forgive that fricker. I'm never going to forgive them. They did that? No way. Gone, right? Because you don't know what the command was. So because of this faith, the head side of the coin of Christianity is almost always requisite. It's almost always needed for a person to actually exhibit agape love in their life. 
almost always. So it works kind of like this. You got to first hear, understand, learn, or know the command or promise from God, like forgive. And then you have to say, I'm going to believe that, or I'm not, there's the faith. And if you say, I'm going to believe that, then comes the love. It, because it's not a feeling or a natural inclination of ours, and it doesn't happen outside of opposition to our will, you can't get to agape love without having those other things first. Do you get it? That's why we study the Word of God, because it teaches us the principles. It's not to tell you what to do. It teaches us the principles. You then are free to say, I believe that principle, or no, I don't believe it. And then you get to go out and live your life and say, I remember hearing that principle. Ah, too bad. Or, boy, I remember that principle. I believe that. Darn it, I better turn the other cheek on this one. You see? So it's all connected in that framework when it comes to agape love. All right? So you hear, you believe, then you make a choice to love or not. This formula, if you will, and I really don't like formulas, but is not required when it comes to expressing eros love, erotic love for a spouse. It's not required when it comes to expressing friendly love that we have. We could be born a friendly person, just love to have parties and be friends with people. That could be our natural state. That's not, we're talking about when the friend hurts us, really hurts us that the agape love steps in that's what we're learning at campus to try to understand here is how the love uh, that God wants us to have works in and comes into play. But not a feeling. It's based first on facts and then it's exhibited by faith in choosing to trust and believe in those facts. And then it is to love. Look at Abraham is known as the father of the faith, right? Father of the faith. God said two things to Abraham. He said, I am going to make you a great nation from your son Isaac. I am going to make you a great nation out of your son Isaac. Abraham could believe that. He could have faith in that or he could not. That was the first thing. The second thing God says, now go up and sacrifice him. So Abraham, he's known as the father of faith of all Judaism, all Christianity, and all Islam, is believes that God is going to make multiple children from his son, Isaac. And at the same time, God says, and also go up and sacrifice him. And Abraham believed and trusted, had faith in God that the first thing he promised him would occur in spite of the second. And he went forward and he did what... Faith told him to do. In fact, he told the guys at the bottom of the mountain, Isaac and I are going up. And when we come back, that's what he said. He had that much faith that, hey, God has told me, go up. He's going to be the one that all these people come through, but go up and sacrifice him. Abraham, a man of faith in God, said, okay, I'm going to climb up. Let's go, Isaac. And Isaac gets up there and what's this wood for and what's going on? And to the point where he lifts the knife and then it is stopped. And God says, you know, uh, you know, you're faithful. Understand that in that story, Abraham evinced the first great commandment. Love God over everything else. 
He loved his son, Isaac. He knew the promises of Isaac were upon his head. But the first commandment is love God. Abraham, in his faith and action, showed his love for God first, even to the point of willing to take his own son, which is a type and picture that goes on deeply, and we could cover it. But it is a remarkable evidence of first faith and then completing the first commandment to love God above all others. And in, in those things, Abraham is known as the father of the faith. So let's work backward for a minute, just for a second, and we uh, return to the head side of Christianity, the, the, the faith. Because in order to go through the love thing, the faith thing has to be really understood. It is said that faith is the persuasion of our mind uh, that a certain statement is true. All right? And behind it's the, the primary idea of I trust that. I trust it. Trust is very closely related to the faith. Well, I trust that, so I believe that is true, and so I'm going to have faith in it. We can say, I believe that this thing is true, and therefore it's worthy of my trust. That's what the faith kind of is. Uh, this trust ought to rely, listen carefully, your trust ought to rely on evidence upon which the assertions rest. Um, in other words, we might call faith good faith and bad faith. That's how I see faith in my life. And we might call bad faith if it rests on assertions that have no evidentiary basis at all. An assertion that has no evidence behind it, that is bad faith. Bad faith and good faith. That's how I want to teach it. And it might be good faith if it is substantiated by enough reasonable evidences. That's how I would just describe it. To say, I believe, I have faith, I trust in a planet two billion miles away full of blue aliens that are called Blutons is bad faith. Because the evidence for the Blutons is really, really scant. You got to kind of really stretch out there to say two billion miles away, Bluton exists and there are blue aliens on it. That's bad faith. There's no evidence for the assertion, okay? No matter how good, listen, no matter how popular something is or no, ma no matter how beneficial it is, if it isn't based on evidence, then it's not good faith. And that's part of the problem is people will say, well, look at, I don't care what you say, my belief in this, look at how, what it's done for me, you know. Look how it's helped me and my family. So really, does, I don't really care if it's good faith or bad faith, I just know it benefits me. That is bad faith. And I'm not a fan at all. I want my faith to be based on as much reasonable evidence for the assertions made. And if there's lacking evidence, I don't think God expects us to put our faith in it. He has given us plenty of evidences. Now, those evidences can be disputed, but if they're reasonable enough, I think that you're really on the way to possessing good faith. If they fail in reason and they lack in evidence, 
then it is really a poor form of faith, right? So good faith then can be so labeled when it is substantiated by reliable and reasonable evidence. It's interesting, God does not, contrary to what many critics and atheists uh, maintain, God does not want us to and ask us to believe in vacuous, hollow assertions. He does not do that. His word provides us with the assertions and, and we look around to see what evidences there are for those assertions. If we don't have evidence for the assertion, then we are creating uh, the blutons in our mind with, with what we're reading. But if we have reasonable evidence for the assertions, then you can choose to put your faith in it. Other people can say that's not reasonable. But if there's reasonable evidences, then good faith is underway. Also interesting is the fact that where some biblical assertions lack in evidence, they lack in evidence, the assertions that are not lacking in evidence lead us and can lead us to place faith in the things that lack some evidence. For instance, Genesis says God created the heavens and the earth. Okay? And you can look around and you can see all kinds of evidence for a creator in the heavens and the earth. You can see the solar system. You can see all sorts of macro and micro evidences in the plant, in animal life, in human life, birth of a baby, uh, rotation of the sun, whatever it is. There's evidences ad nauseum. Now, some people say those aren't evidences for God. Some people say those are reasonable evidences for a creator. And you choose, but the evidences are there for you to say, I trust that God created the heavens and the earth. But then when we come to another proposition, and it doesn't have the same amount of evidences, you say, well, God has told me, all right, this, that he's the creator, I trust in him. Therefore, I might make a little bit more of a leap toward believing what he says here, even though the evidences are less, like the flood, okay? <laughs> the evidences for the flood are seen in so many different ways, and they're criticized, and, but there is enough reasonable evidence that God is a creator, and there's enough reasonable evidence, though it's not much, that there was a flood, then you can say, I trust that there was a flood, and therefore I then trust there was an ark, even though I have really no evidence for that ark. Except they've just built a new one somewhere, and I guess you can go touch that. Uh, but there's no evidence for an ark. And then to try to put all those animals in it, man, you know... And so you have what, but, but what we have in the faith is we have people take that story of the ark and they impute all sorts of their own logic unsupported and they say everybody else must believe it like I do. All you're saying is, all we're saying as a Christian, all I say as a Christian is, I trust that there's a God based off the evidence. I trust that I can rely on him and I trust there was a flood. Whether it was geographical whether it, was a whether it was a boat that held a few animals from that area, I don't know. You know, the word world there doesn't mean world. There's no way it contained every animal in the, in the entire world that, you know, like some people would suggest. So, you know, I don't have the evidence for that other stuff. So you back off on some of the stuff that others have imputed a great deal of faith in, but it's not good faith. It's not good faith. It's bad faith. Because God doesn't give us the evidences himself. So, 
God has given us an abundance of evidence for his existence. In my opinion, others say no. I just met with three guys who say there's no evidence at all. I don't see him anywhere. But I see a supremely powerful being in and through the orchestration of, of all these things, through science and through nature and through a multiplicity of complex factors. They are evidences to me which ultimately can be interpreted differently, but for me, they are the, they are the substance of that faith, you see? There is evidence for it in my world. Now, if you compare it to something like the Blutons, and there's no evidence at all. So that's where you have to really start to analyze. We have a, we have a religion that says uh, in this state that there are golden plates, you know, that weighed like 90 pounds and were run around within the forest and carried a record that were taken up by an angel and was translated through looking in a hat. The, the evidences for that are, be, are getting beyond reason. They get beyond that. And so I don't place my faith in that. That's bad faith. I want good faith, right? So if you he listen to this stuff, things like six-day creation in six 24-hour periods, it's, it's men giving us more than that is there. Doesn't, it's not 24-hour periods. We have no idea. When people say that the world is 5,000 or 8,000 years old, we have no evidence of that, none. We have evidence that it is uh, billions of years old, but that could be incorrect too, but we just don't know. So you don't have to create a good or bad faith on this. You just say, it doesn't matter to me because we don't have evidence either way to really support it. If you have evidence that strongly says it's 10 billion years old and that's verifiable, then I would go with it, fine. It's 10 billion years old. These things are not hills to die on, right? Uh, animals on the ark, all that kind of stuff that Christian culture makes as imperatives to being a Christian. No, 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 not, 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 not so. So I am personally bent on standing only on good faith, only on good faith, which is supported by evidence that is reasonable to assume as um, indicative of the faith being sound. And therefore, I am ambivalent, and I suggest that you be ambivalent about things that question uh, tradition, you know, uh, evolution and all that stuff. In other words, I would prefer to hold on, hold back on generally trusting some assertions if God himself has not given us the evidence to support them. He gives us the evidence for the things he wants us to, to know. People say there was no Jesus. We have evidence there was a Jesus. From the secular record, non-Christian record, we have evidence there was a Jesus. We have evidence that the things that Jesus said would happen, happened. We have a lot of evidence for those things. They'll say there's none. There is some. It's not a lot, you know, so you got to choose again. But if God hasn't given us plenty of reasonable evidence, I just stand back on it. I don't know. I don't care, you know. So intrinsic to the possession of good faith now is knowledge. So this is the next part. Interestingly enough, faith is often equated with knowledge. Christians will say, I know. They'll say, I know. No, they don't know. We walk by faith, which is based on the assertion of evidences that can be reasonably uh, interpreted. But we don't know. There's only a couple things a person can know, and that's subjective in their heart between them and God that Scripture talks about. So there's a huge difference. Knowledge requires no assent 
You don't have to say, okay, that knowledge I'm going to now believe because it's knowledge. You know it's gnosko in the Greek. Faith requires an ascent. It requires a leap from the things you know, the evidences, to the thing you're going to believe. So they're not the same. When we know something, we know it, and faith is not part of that knowledge. When we know some facts, but, are, but we don't know all of the facts, faith is required. You have to make that Kierkegaardian leap of faith, you know? So that's what we do as Christians. We walk by faith, which pleases God, and we stand at a chasm, and God has taken us up to the edge of the chasm with evidences that are reliable. He says, I created the heaven and the earth. Well, I look around, and I can't believe uh, the structure of the eye, and I can't believe in, uh, how great uh, the birds of the world are, and I, it's hard to uh, understand how anything came about that has come about in this whole thing when I look at the cosmos. And it stops... And then you make what Kierkegaard said, a leap of faith. You say, this chasm over to this side, I'm jumping over. And that's criticized by non-believers. They want empirical data as a bridge taking us right over. But no, that's not, that's not the, the way Christians work. So you have to admit, I do live and walk by faith. So where we might have knowledge that there is a world that is part of a grand system it's inhabited and it's an enormous network of creatures and, and we make an ascent based on those evidences to choose to place our faith in the notion that there's a creator. And there's no way in an intellectual discussion you can get around the fact that we do this by faith. So I'm sitting with the three atheists uh, in the studio and we're having discussion on this and they are really sharp. And they're good at it, but you have to explain to them, look it, we have to admit here, I choose to have faith on these evidences. You choose to have no faith on the evidences. There's the difference. It's faith because none of us were there when God created the heavens and the earth, right? We don't have a knowledge of that. It's a faith. Uh, he t God told Job, where were you when I did this, Job? Answer me if you can, right? You are giving all this wisdom out. Tell me, Job, where were you when I did this, right? Job doesn't have knowledge. Job only has faith. So when people say they know something that is really a matter of faith, it's not beneficial to Christianity. It doesn't help us as a whole to walk around and get on discreet Facebook and to write this stuff when in reality, let's just be humble about it and admit, I, I trust it. It's something I believe. You can mock me all you want. Because knowledge and evidence is important to the establishment of faith, Scripture tells us it comes by hearing the word. Let me repeat that. Because knowledge, knowing this, these, this information of evidence, establishes faith in, in spiritual things, our faith comes by hearing the word. Why? Because it's hearing what the Bible is teaching us that gives us the knowledge to say, hmm, gives us the evidences, hmm, gives us the promises that we say, hmm, I'm going to believe. So hearing comes by faith is what it says. You remember Romans 10, 14, 17. Paul says, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. We have a principle right there. 
How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? How can you call on, say, call on the Lord and say, save me if you've never believed on him? And then he says, and how shall they believe in him in whom they've not heard? If you don't have the knowledge of him to believe on him, how could you be saved by him? And he says, and how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach unless they are sent? So then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Why do we gather together on a Sunday morning? It's beautiful outside. We can do so many other things. We want the word by the spirit to give us the information, to give us the uh, commands by God, to give us the principles by God. We look around for the evidences to support that. We place faith in that. And we go out of this place and we love according to the commandments given. Bringing it full circle, then we see knowledge gives us evidences. Spiritual evidences come from the word of God uh, when supported by the spirit of truth. Evidences are required for good faith. Evidences are required for good faith. Good faith in the promises, principles, and commands of God lead to loving action that we choose to do. That's the circle, which is all part of free will. It's all a free will choice. Don't ever think that it's imposed upon you and you're a, you're a robot and you have to do this because you're being forced to. You're choosing, right? So uh, Paul clearly states that he could have all faith, enough to move mountains. And if he lacks godly love, he has nothing. The point cannot be taken that godly love is possible in the absence of faith because of this hyperbole. Don't think that at all, even though the import of godly love is heightened in this chapter. Okay, and then Paul gives us another example of hyperbole. We're going to move quack, quick quacker now. Uh, he says at verse 3, ready? And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor and, have, and I give my body to be burned, talk what that means in a second, and have not God's love, it profits me nothing. These are, this is hyperbole. He is telling us, man, there's the goal. This is the goal. And if you don't have the goal, who cares about anything else, right? The Greek word here for bestow my goods, it means breaking off in small quantities and distributing. Now, why would that Greek word be used here when Paul says, though I bestow my goods to give to the poor? Why does Paul put it this way? Anciently, and even presently, uh, that would be a sign of the greatest good you could do. Here's why. If you take your, all that you have, for some crazy reason, and you give it to one person, that's not very magnanimous. The one person's rejoicing, other people hear that the one person benefited, but, you know, it's not that big of a deal, right? So, uh, there's also no show in that, anciently, and not much of one. But if you bestow all your worldly goods in small quantities out to people, you will in all probability be surrounded by hundreds or thousands of people, depending on how much you have. And... Um, They'll all have their outstretched arms, and then your benevolence looks like a wonderful thing, a really wonderful thing anciently. In Paul's day, uh, contributing to the poor looked like that. 
the rich guys would open up their doors and, and the people would throng around them and they would distribute out them each a cracker, you know, and it made them look like they're so benevolent. That's why he uses that Greek word to mean parse out in small quantities. Uh, I can't help think of Pablo Escobar. At his height, he's, he's earning like a billion dollars a week or something. And he used to go to the poor in his community and he'd get his friends and they would all gather and the people would gather and throng around Pablo and his friends and they'd hand them out dollar bills. You know, and they'd give out $2,000 bills in, a, in an afternoon. Oh, he's Pablo, he's our savior. He's bringing a billion a week. You know, this is the concept that Paul's talking about. So this desire of the opulent and wealthy to be seen as benevolent in Paul's day, that's what he uses there. Uh, in their meager distributions. The Lord addressed this. He said, take heed that you do not your alms before men. He was talking about this habit uh, to be seen of them. Otherwise, you have no reward of your father, which is in heaven. Patrick, be quiet. Therefore, when thou doest alms, do not sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in their streets, that they may have the glory of men. Verily I say unto you, they have their reward. But when thou doest alms, let not thy left hand know what thy right hand doeth, that thine alms may be seen in secret, and the Father which sees in secret himself will reward you openly. Okay? In any case, to make a, the case as strong as possible, Paul says that if all that a man were dealt out to the world... Um, given to others, and they didn't possess that love, it would be false, it would be hypocritical, and, um, and it would profit them nothing in their relationship to God themselves. Finally, he gives us one more example and says, and though I give my body to be burned and have not God's love, it profits me nothing. What does that mean? That's, it's beneficial to give your body to be burned, to be cremated? No, uh, most scholars of the apostolic age think that he's talking about martyrdom, and that if you are going to martyrdom and uh, as a Christian. Now he takes it to the ultimate extreme. You've given away all your goods. You've done this. You've done that. You've moved mountains. You've spoke, spoke with the tongue that everybody in the world has. But now you've even gone to the point that you're going to be martyred for your faith. But you have not love. It profits you nothing. How emphatic can this guy be? How emphatic can we be? I mean, all it is is about love. That's all it's about. But it's godly love. And it's in the way that we've described because the other ways are the loves that we just normally naturally feel. So many ancient prophet, prophets suffered martyrdom, but we don't know many who suffered by fire. The only one I can think of is uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the Old Testament. But they were put and thrown into the fire, but they walked around in it and weren't harmed. Uh, in Paul's day, they're not sure if people were being put to death by fire or not, but we know that Nero, who did live within Paul's time, ultimately did take Christians, wrap them up in plastic, and light them up for his garden parties at night. So we know that Christians were martyred by fire back anciently. And then we also know, even uh, from more recent history, that John Calvin uh, in Geneva he ensured that other Anabaptists and people who were in, in, in conflict to his teachings were put to death by fire. And, and he contributed to it if he didn't cause it himself and said things like, you know, add more wood. 
So even believers, putting believers to death by fire, Paul is saying if you go and submit to that death, um, besides that point, he's taking us to an extreme. You can suffer martyrdom by flame, uh, but it will profit you nothing if you don't practice, I'm going to put it that way, godly love. And at this point, we get the idea, right? He set, he set the idea of how important this is for Christianity. The tail side is the goal. Brought about in harmony with the head side, okay? Let's begin at verse 4, where now he starts to describe for us, which is such a blessing, what this love actually looks like now. He's told us how it, doesn't, how it won't be of benefit if you don't have it, but now he gives us these all-familiar phrases, godly love suffers long, is kind, godly love doesn't envy, godly love vaunteth not itself, it's not puffed up, does not behave unseemingly, seeks not her own, is not easily provoked, thinketh no evil, rejoiceth not in iniquity, but rejoices in truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things, charity or godly love never fails. Doesn't ever fail. 16 descriptions of godly love. We're going to go through the first three or four, and then we'll wrap it up. Okay? But we have 16. It's going to carry us into next week. Not one of them includes godly love is insulting. Godly love is rashly angry. Godly love is yelling. Godly love is purposely manipulating. Godly love is pointing out faults. Godly love is laughing and mocking at others. Godly love is judging others. Godly, godly love is excluding others, is unforgiving, is condemning people to hell. Godly love never says you're not saved. Godly love never condemns because it always wins. It never fails. So when people justify things in the name of their zeal for God, it doesn't conform to what Paul has said. Instead, listen to the 16, God is saying, Godly love suffers long as kind, envies not, vaunteth not itself, is not puffed up, does not behave unseemingly, seeks not its own, is not provoked, thinks no evil, rejoices not in iniquity, rejoices in the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things, never fails. So Paul begins to illustrate for us the nature of godly love and how it's exemplified. And all his uh, illustrations are drawn from how godly love is seen and interpreted in us as individuals. Some characteristics are visible to others. Some characteristics are actually internal. And the description of agape love that Paul gives is not only what it looks like, but what it really is, what it is not. These 16 things are what it is and what it is not. Therefore, agape love is described here by doing it, by being it. It's what it is. It does not have to feel in our hearts. Understand that. In fact, it probably will go contrary at times to our hearts. Might be in harmony, but in times it will be contrary to what our hearts say. Do you get the difference? Consider the word long-suffering. That's the first one he gives us. Godly love is long happiness, long partying, long, gosh, this is a great time-ish. 
It's long frickin' suffering. That means it's not fun. Agape love is long suffering. Listen, where the feelings inside of a person are not in harmony with the action God wants them to take. And I've mentioned this is really important to a lot of women. They beat themselves up for being angry in their heart toward things, but acting with the other attributes of godly love. Don't beat yourself up. When you're long-suffering, male or female, with a situation that you otherwise would not be, if you are suffering in it, but you are being patient in it, that's long-suffering. It means you're not in harmony with the thing that's going on. It's the doing of agape love. Nobody on earth, for instance, that I would know in their right mind, would want to go to the DMV with a teenager who, is, who has tickets and infractions with the law and, and registration issues, and you have to make repeated visits. Nobody wants to do that, right? But long-suffering love says, teenager, you mean so much to me in God's eyes. You need this. I will do this even though it's insufferable, right? Now, if you love going to the DMV and you choose to spend your time that way with a teenager who has all sorts of problems, that's not agape love. That's just you doing what you want. You see? We could apply this and all the rest of the attributes to any insufferable thing we're going through in our lives. In other words, along the way of being a Christian and our engagements with others, whenever we might encounter, and I'm sorry, it's hard, it's so hard to do, an angry encounter, an injustice that's heaped upon you, uh, a long line, bad traffic, a confrontation, an attack, an inconvenience, a difficult person. Godly love is long-suffering, long in the suffering with that situation because it exists only, remember, in opposition to what we would rather have. So whatever uh, confronts us, agape love, suffereth long, is kind, envieth not, vaunts not itself, is not puffed up, does not behave unseemingly, seeks not her own, is not easily provoked, thinketh no evil, rejoices not in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things, it never fails. Sick of the list yet? It's important that we describe a godly love as the list because someone could possess the whole list, but if they're not long-suffering, they're just missing the one, then they aren't really possessing the godly love. That's why he gives us the, all these definitions of it because it comes as a package. I had a group from a, a Christian college here on uh, Thursday. We met right here and uh, talked to them and talked to, about this principle of agape love. And they said they were here to talk to LDS people. And they said, well, how do you share truth with this love? And I said, well, I didn't used to, but there's a difference. You can share the truth with someone. You can definitely share the truth, which will be hard for them to hear. But you do it under the principles of what are given in chapter 13 and other places. So you say, I, you know, I just got to tell you, I love you. I mean, you're great. You're fine. But you believe something that is absolutely false. I'm, I'm sorry, brother. 
That's how you do it. Not, this is so false, you're an idiot. That was the former way I used to go by. So entertaining, so fun, right? But not the thing that really works for a lot of people. So if a person expressed 15 of the 16, then the agape love has to be put in question. And that's a heavy, heavy burden. That's a heavy burden. People think being under the Old Testament law was a burden. You start looking at the elements of agape love in your life, and guess what? The result, if you're earnest to know and love God and follow him, is break, you break. Because in that list, you have to break. I certainly do. You know, so it's not about not teaching the truth. It's just making sure that it's done in, it can be direct, but it's got to be in that love. Heavy. So, And if you think about it, that's what we would want of God. God is love. He is long-suffering with us, right? We, all those, he, he is this with us. He's all those 16 things with us. We want him to be that way with us. And we're never pleasing to him, you know? I mean, I mean not never, but we, we, you know, we're disappointing him a lot. And he's long-suffering. Therefore, we are long-suffering being his children. So... Uh, Remember the context of the chapter. Paul probably thought that all of these expressions were necessary to the people at Corinth because they were fighting all the time. And we've talked about that. Paul begins with our English word long-suffering. I've touched on it, but really quickly, makrothio, and it means patient endurance. It means slowness, and it means forbearance. So hard in some areas of life. It stands in contrast to haste, passion, expressions, irritability uh, that is really noticeable, you know. It can be assigned to attributes, words, and a state of mind and is in contrast to the reactions we normally have when confronted with difficulty. Uh, Paul wrote in 1 Timothy 1.16 about himself, For this cause I obtain mercy, that in me first Jesus Christ might show forth all longsuffering. So Christ Jesus is showing longsuffering toward us for a pattern to them that they should hereafter believe to life everlasting. So in another place where the fruit of the Spirit is described, it's, Paul writes, but the fruit of the Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit is love. And then joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Against such there's no law. And by the way, you could probably add the, that list to our 16 here. You could probably add some of those that aren't repeated. Peace, joy, gentleness, things like that. In another Pauline epistle, we read the following, which beautifully describes the Christian way uh, toward long-suffering. He says to the believers then, Put on therefore as the elect of God, holy and beloved, bowels of mercy, kindness, humbleness of mind, meekness, long-suffering, forbearing one another, forgiving one another. If any man have a quarrel against any, even as Christ forgave you, so also do ye. Right? And above all these things, put on God's love, which is the bond of perfectedness. Uh, and let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to which you are called in one body, and be ye thankful. Number two, agape love is kind. And the word here denotes good nature, tender, affectionate, uh, courteous is how Tyndale described it. Courteous. Um, the idea is that under all provocations and ill treatment, that you're gentle and mild. 
just now Patrick was talking in the back and I said, Patrick, stop talking or be quiet. Some people can say that wasn't kind. In my world, that's kind. <laughs> but, uh, but it is the truth. But some people say, well, that wasn't as kind as you could be. Uh, we're recording here. We need to have some you know, tone of voice and things like that. So we enter into subject, subjectivity here. And God is the one who's judging the heart, right? So uh, kindness is important. But again, there's some subjectivity there. And you have to decide who you are and what is all these things combined, how it's working, right? So note that contempt and hatred, severity, violence, revenge, mocking is not part of this. And godly love is the reverse of all these things. Therefore, in addition, there, uh, but in addition to long-suffering, when we truly love others, we will be courteous to them, kind, gentle, and will refrain from uh, harshly mocking them or treating them. The Apostle Paul wrote in his first epistle, uh, Apostle Peter wrote in chapter 3, Finally, to the saints then, be all of one mind, having compassion one of another, love as brethren, be pitiful, be courteous, but rendering, not rendering evil for evil or railing for railing, but contrarywise giving blessing, knowing that you are therefore called that you should inherit a blessing. For he that will love life and see good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips that they may speak no guile. Let him eschew evil and do good. Let him seek peace and ensue it. Number three, godly love envieth not. Envy is a fascinating word in scripture because it means warmly affections towards something or warm affections against something. So you can be envious of somebody in a good way and you can be envious of somebody in a bad way. Both are warm uh, feelings or affections toward that person. So we remember that in the last chapter, Paul said to the saints, zealously covet these spiritual gifts, but I'm going to show you a more excellent way. That word covet there is lezuu, and it's the same word used here for envying, dezluu. It means warmly feel toward these spiritual gifts. Um, but there are other places where dezulu uh, means um, don't do it. Don't look at somebody else and have warm feelings and covet or have envious feelings toward them in a negative way. So there's a positive way to have envy and there's a negative way to have envy, right? So on the one hand, it's really good to envy something that is good in another person and uh, as, a, as a means for you to grow and, 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 and desire that in a good, healthy way. Not out of hatred and spite, but you look at what they've done, what they've accomplished, and you're happy for them and you, you, you are warmly envious toward them in a positive way. Gosh, I wish I, I could do what you do in this area, right? There's nothing wrong with that. Um, but if we have negative envy, we hate the possessor of the gift and, uh, because they possess something that we desire. And it all comes down again to the heart. So when it comes to the envy Paul is talking about here, it's the condition of the heart and what the heart is doing with that envy, and not necessarily that you possess envy in and of itself. It seems Paul is using envy here in the sense of agape love does not envy in the negative sense, but agape love is happy and envious in the positive sense, uh, and it delights in the good uh, fortune of others. 
So someone is gifted in some way, blessed with characteristics, or has some sort of success in this life. Christian agape love is happy for them. It rejoices in their welfare, in their success, in their reputation, in their health, in their children. Uh, You get it. And it seems that in addition to not being negatively envious of them, they would treat them kindly and they would be happy for them. That's what he's talking about. Uh, The negative envy, he says, envieth not, means somebody who's had all those things and you treat them differently because of it. Because they represent some kind of success you wish you had. Or something about their personality that you, or body, or face, or whatever it is. So the thing about this form of negative envy is it is so part. I mean, it starts off with the first brothers, Cain and Abel. I mean, it starts right off at the beginning. Negative envy is so part of the natural human makeup. So it takes really a spiritual miracle in us through God to take our hearts and to move us to be happy for people who have successes and who are um, uh, given certain things that we want, you know. A person with good envy will always be happy, but in the flesh, which is what we're all in, we might feel for their destruction, for their failure, and rejoice in the fact that they're getting theirs, you know. Uh, Godly love doesn't allow for that, and it's tough. A Reformed theologian, who I don't agree with his theology, but I do love his mind, Um, uh, Spurgeon, Charles Spurgeon, he once said something that we engrave our problems in granite, and we write our blessings in sand. And I mention this because the way to help overcome envy of the negative kind is to look at the blessings you've been given in your life by God, things you did not merit, your intellect, your skill, well, not your skill, you, you, but maybe your propensity for your skill, your talents, your place in life. Susan might be gorgeous, but you can look at yourself and say, I live better than 85% of the world's population. You know, John might be a successful businessman, but I do have healthy children. Thank God, I'm so grateful for that. Gratitude seems to help us. True gratitude for true things, again, that evidentiary stuff, seems to help us overcome those, envy, the, those envious feelings that are negative. Um, so whatever pulls our lever toward envy, genuine gratitude toward God seems to be something. And that leads us to the last one for today. Vaunteth not itself. And of course, this seems to speak to boasting and bragging. And it's interesting that he tells people, don't envy negatively. But the next one he says is, and also don't brag. You know? You know, if you had less bragging, perhaps we'd have less envy. So uh, he says it's not boastful and bragging because the word occurs. No one else in the New Testament. Some thinks that it's talking about actions that are thoughtless. There's this idea that it means being rash with your actions. I'm not so sure. I tend to think of it in the standard way. I think it means don't boast. Don't vaunt yourself, your excellent accomplishments above others before the world. In this, Paul seems to take the reverse on negative envy and say, now, in a way to help people not possess negative envy, don't be boastful. Don't walk around and say, you know, I just won the lottery or, you know, my wife is kind of being good housekeeping with her cookies. When I get in this moment of making things up, it's so bad. This is where I get in big trouble. 
Whatever it is, right? Bottom line, genuinely godly love isn't boasting and other people then aren't envying. So uh, it seems that genuine godly love works that way. And from this, we might be able to say that the person who does the most good in this world uh, is the one who is accustomed to boasting the least because they're not causing some of these other things to occur in the hearts of their uh, surrounding brothers and sisters. We're going to continue our study of 1 Corinthians 13 next week. And uh, questions, comments, considerations. Hi, Sean. Our, um, uh, first, Patrick, okay. our new banner is, is this working? Okay. It is working. And I'll get to you, my dear. Um, I want to say that what you're teaching is important in the kind of society we live in. Thank you, brother. You can see that I'm wearing a certain pin. What does it say? Love wins. Ooh. Okay, love does win. Now you can see what's inside the heart there. Sometimes people have a different perspective of what love is. Okay? It's the main bill. Oh. Sometimes you can have a different perspective. People have different perspective of what love is. I wear it for a purpose. You, and we've talked before in the past. But the love you're talking about, it goes beyond the fleshly kind of love. Amen, brother. Because sometimes I wake up in the morning. <laughs> in fact, when you said that about me in the back, I kind of wanted to give you the finger, but I didn't. I didn't. I know you did in your heart. I sat there. <laughs> I sat there and said, I love Sean. I know he means well, so I'm going to forgive him and move on. I forgive you for being noisy. <laughs> well, my friend walked around the corner, and then he had to go, so... Why don't we just have this whole conversation on the, on the microphones for everybody at home? <laughs> okay, anyways, Patrick's ladies and gentlemen. my friend. We can talk to each other this way. Yeah. Anyways, um, so you said that the law, of, um, not the law, um, faith comes by hearing. I have a question. But faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. Yeah. I believe that. So how do you reconcile that scripture with what Paul says that uh, everything, invisible, visible, all things created, they are, the law of God, Romans one twenty, is written on our hearts. Yeah. So a man living in the middle of Africa with no Bible, nothing, but he looks up and says, hey, I believe in you. I believe that something's out there. Yeah. And God says, I'm writing my law on your heart. Absolutely. And I think both, both are, uh, they're not uh, mutually, They're not contradictory? No, they're not. They can work together. The, the written word, do, though, does serve to divide us. So we yeah. have to be really careful not to let that be the law. And we've talked so much about that. Yeah. But that, that, what God writes on our heart to fill with his love can exist in absence of that written word. Oh. And remember, that was to them then. That I was, see, yeah. yeah. Okay. Thanks, good, Sean. Good You're questions. awesome. Please state your name, date of birth. Social Security number. Thank you. My name is Kimberly. But um, thanks, Sean, for your message. I really liked it. Awesome. Um, so my question would be, and I'll preface that I know it's like the intention in your heart when you do this, but still to go further than that. If you're expressing a lot of gratitude for your blessings, can that come across to people as boasting? I mean internally. I don't mean oh. to others. Okay, so is it not really that great to, to others like talk about how blessed you are? I don't think it is. Okay. I mean, I think that, um, you know, you can say God blesses us so much humbly and, you know, he's been with me, so he's blessed our family you can be general you know if someone's getting specific with you how do you have such beautiful hair well you know god blessed me with a nice mane uh you can be that but just just being boastful and open about all your successes is i think what it's talking about yeah okay thanks good, good comment though it is internal though that that being grateful for what he's done i think i, I think that um sorry again i think that the gratefulness 
I think when I'm blessed, and I tell people I'm blessed, it's not to boast of myself. It's to say, look at Jesus and what he's done in my life. Amen. Give him the praise. Good. So that others can see, oh, wow, Jesus is actually in that man's life or in that woman's life. Good. So that's how I think of it. One thing I have to ask you, you notice that Vanna White doesn't talk about the words up on the board. <laughs> you never hear from Vanna. <laughs> he's going to kill me afterward. He's, he's lubing his hands up to do it. It's sanitizer. Oh. <laughs> Go, Gaylene. Okay, you talk about Gothic love. Is Gothic love form up when you have a relative that likes to yell at you all the time? You still yell at me, but I do not go around her house or home anymore because of her yelling. Uh, is that Gothic love or is that dislike love? Oh, yelling at you? No, I don't think that's part of it, honey. I, it's not Gothic love? Agape love? No, I don't think that's it. I don't think the yelling is part of Agape that's love. That's a disliking love, right? That's just someone who's frustrated. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus did say to be meek, the meek shall inherit the earth. That's right. <laughs> Am I meek? <laughs> you are. Anybody else? Again? Cool. You're going lots too. I'm just kidding. <laughs> okay. So, it's Kimberly again. So, well, with what Gaylene said, it made me think, um, if we, so if someone's toxic in our life and being around them continues to hurt us, can we forgive them and hold love for them in our heart and pray for them, but still have agape love by staying away from them? Sure. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, you can't be around someone who's going to be harming you. And Jesus said to be wise as a serpent. It's not a lack of love, remember. It's a decision, but it's for your benefit. But it doesn't mean you hate them and speak evil of them and all that stuff, right? This is so funny, you guys. you got to understand from my perspective. We, like last week or two weeks ago, we talked about love. I mean, it was the performance on love. And my friend Richard Dutcher was sitting right there, and he was just like, this is great. I'm really, really good. And then we passed the microphone around. And one person, they're not here right now, but they took the microphone, and they went on a little bit for a while. <laughs> you got to watch your faces. I mean, this is our natural self. That's what we're, let's be real. I mean, he goes, comes up to me afterwards, he goes, you know, I was so filled with godly love and I wanted to just follow it and follow it, but the more that person talked, I just wanted to stand in the screen, shut the blank up! <laughs> That's what we gather for as believers, so we can kind of practice this and see what it's all about. We talk about the principles and then we have to then, you know, sort of engage with it. Kathy. Well, um, is it on? I don't yeah. know if I'm talking the right thing. I have a granddaughter who was really bad on drugs. And my daughter went to a counselor, and that counselor, so I'm just confused a bit, that counselor advised them to cut her off from the family totally because she was sending really horrible texts to her mom and her dad and her sisters and brothers. So the whole family cut her off completely. But you know, and my daughter would call me crying, and she said, we live with death on our shoulder. We, we know we could get a call any day that, that she has died. And, and she said, but we've been told by this counselor to completely cut her off, and that was the only thing that would save her, and it did. She's now completely off drugs, and she's had a baby, and she's happy, and she's working. I, I don't know if that was from the cutting off, or, but she couldn't send that vile stuff to her family anymore because they just erased her, so to speak. So 
I'm just confused about agape love in that situation. Well, the drugs are always tough, aren't they? Yeah. You know, it's, I think it's the, the heart and what it is, you know, are you mean in cutting them off? Are you, are you loving in cutting them off? Do you communicate with them gently and kindly when they've been cut off? I'm sorry, honey. It's just, you just have to understand these things are killing you and they're going to kill us. If, we, if you don't do something, it's, you know, and you talk in those terms or do you like, you're such a low life until you straight, right. I know you wouldn't do that, but that, I think it's, does the love come through? They know you love them. But drugs are so difficult, you know, and I, I don't know. I, I don't know. What kind of drugs is it the green stuff? That's In your not case, di- that's yes. not difficult. Anyway, I'm just joking, Sean. I of course wouldn't know what the green stuff was unless Patrick went the green stuff. <laughs> I'm just joking. <laughs> All right, anybody else? All right, you guys. Let's pray. Lord, we, uh, we do want to overcome our flesh, and, uh, and the way you start is just by admitting its uh, tendencies, and it's there. So help us now to take uh, some of the things that we've discussed, and by your Spirit, and walk out of here, and uh, start to think about where we are in that choosing to love in times that are difficult, and that we make that choice freely to be benevolent and have goodwill for others in the face of opposition and we want to win and have the victory through love like Patrick Bad says so we just seek to uh, exit here better equipped to make the choice for love and to be wise as well you know you tell us to be wise and this was brought up by Amber and Kathy you know when do you cut off when how do you do this and so it takes wisdom it takes your spirit so we don't want to become um, ineffective in our expressions of love. We want it to always be beneficial and have goodwill at heart for those around us. We pray for those who are on our list. We pray for our friend Gracie and the cancer she's fighting, continued peace and comfort for her and her family. Robert, continued healing from cancer. Tammy, comfort for her back, her back pain. Phyllis, recovery from pancreatic cancer and surgery. And anybody else who's not on this list, Liz and her uh, multiple Uh, difficulties with her uh, body and we rejoice in the things that you've done for others who are in our presence and we've had uh, people be healed uh, uh, Lisa and she's on recovery and we've had people find jobs uh, because of others in in here and we're grateful uh, for all these things that are uh, miracles in our day and age and we just pray that uh, you will uh, continue to make yourself known to us so we know you're there and we continue to choose to do what you want us to do and not our own will. So we pray for this now in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.